Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to join me in 1 Thessalonians today. 1 Thessalonians. In any new assignments, whether it's a job or uh, being involved with a sports team or even uh, joining with a new school or college, uh, there is often orientation. There is a series of uh, training opportunities to help you maybe understand corporate culture in that particular company, uh, to know how to navigate uh, things going forward. I've been thinking about this this week with uh, Dylan Christie, our own Dylan Christie, who's in the midst of a seven and a half week uh, basic training in the Air Force. So there it is, right? Basic training. Here's your, your crash course in all things Air Force. Um, Upon arrival, he was issued clothing and equipment, giving, given instruction uh, regarding dorm and drill patterns, uh, and briefed on uniform code, right, right out of the gate. And then week one, he is uh, trained on reporting and saluting procedures, uh, fitness and nutrition, conduct expectations, and he has issued a weapon. Scary thought, isn't it? In week two, he is briefed on Air Force history and begins training for basic situational awareness. He's going to potentially find himself in the field, right, in, uh, in harm's way and needs to understand and be able to interpret what he's looking at and what's going on in the situation, right? So these are just the first couple of weeks, and I'm just giving you sort of the, the skimming the surface, right, of all the things that he is working through in this basic training time. I'm going to suggest to you that the Christian life is no less serious, that we are involved in something in which eternity hangs in the balance, people's lives are at stake, uh, we are God's ambassadors uh, sent and commissioned by the high king himself uh, to be his representatives in the world, to bring his good news of salvation to people who need to hear and uh, God has a particular uh, training code. He has particular expectations for those who will serve him. And First Thessalonians, I'm going to suggest to you, is uh, a handbook, a guidebook, a training manual for new believers. We are continuing on our Route 66 series, a Road Trip Through the Bible, looking at all 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year in 52 weeks. So we're doing big picture uh, perspectives on, uh, on God's Word. Uh, we've considered, of course, creation and fall uh, into sin and, and the redemption that has been provided now through Jesus Christ. This is what we call the gospel. Uh, this is uh, literally the good news uh, that a person can find salvation, forgiveness of sins, can come to peace with their Creator uh, through the work of Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. If we will but turn to him in simple, humble faith, uh, we can share in his victory. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a series of letters to uh, God's people, to the, 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 the first churches there in the first century. So the little blue section on the bottom shelf, that's where we're at, looking at Paul's instructions to these various churches. Uh, he is helping them to be grounded in the gospel. In some cases, he's having to confront false teaching to, to guard the gospel so that uh, 
it can be understood uh, in, in, in all of its fullness. And he is also helping them to understand how to live in light of the gospel. What does it look like, again, to be a follower of Jesus, to be one of his redeemed people? So um, John Calvin suggested that the, the universe is a dazzling theater for God's glory and that the scriptures help us to understand the play and to understand what our role is in this great drama. So uh, Paul's kind of outlining that for the churches here. Now we've noticed as we've moved through Paul's letters that there's a backstory to each of these local churches. There's particular geographical things that, uh, that shaped who they were. They had strengths and each church had strengths and weaknesses. And so uh, we want to take the opportunity here uh, this morning again to understand the backstory. This time the bas- backstory for the city of Thessalonica and the church in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was the largest city in Macedonia. Uh, what we would call modern-day Greece. Um, it was uh, like Philippi on a major commercial highway, the Via Ignatia. This connected Rome to Asia, right? So you see the boot of Rome there to the left of the screen. Uh, there's Thessalonica along the way, and this road was particularly strategic uh, because there was a little land bridge, a little connecting point here that connected Europe to Asia. So all the traffic had to flow through that one spot, (laughs) Uh, what today we call Istanbul in in modern-day Turkey, also called uh, Byzantium, Constantinople, but that was a strategic point. So this, this road is here for a reason. It wasn't put here randomly. It was because this was the way you had to go to get between those two major civilizations. Uh, Thessalonica was not only on the Via Ignatia, on this main highway, it also was, uh, had, had a, a, a natural harbor uh, there on the Mediterranean. So not only was it sort of uh, on the key point for land travel, but it was also a key point for sea travel and sea commerce. Uh, The historian Melatius reflected on this when he said, so long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will remain wealthy and fortunate. (laughs) That this city is just uniquely positioned. It's always going to thrive because of where it's located. So this is Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey. So after leaving Philippi, Uh, Paul traveled 90 miles uh, west along the Via Ignatia to Thessalonica. And we read about this account here in Acts chapter 17. Here's the backdrop. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and and on three Sabbath days, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. 
So unlike Philippi, there was a synagogue here in Thessalonica. You had to have at least 10 men, Jewish men, to form a synagogue. And so you had a little bit of a larger Jewish community here in the city. And this was always Paul's starting point because the Jewish people were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, what they would have referred to as the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul would help to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies that had been given to the Jewish people. He was their Messiah. He was the anointed one, the deliverer that God promised to send. So Paul started there, and some of these Jewish background individuals uh, responded to the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. Also, a number of God-fearing Greeks. This is very interesting terminology. These are non-Jewish people who had turned to worship the God of Israel. They recognized the God of Israel to be the one true God. So uh, they, they weren't Jewish, but they were, were God-fearers. That's the terminology that's often used to describe them. And then, of course, uh, a number of prominent women as well who were part of this new church. So uh, diversity here of both Jews and uh, Gentiles and men and women. Uh, we also read in this section actually that Andrew read in the, the introduction here in Thessalonians in chapter 1, Paul says that in, in, from the time he established this church uh, to when he wrote a letter to them, there was also a number of folks who had turned from idols. These would not have been Jewish people. Uh, so uh, you, you have some, some people that were coming out of secular backgrounds um, uh, in, in the ancient world, who had, had now turned to Jesus. So, so this is the church, uh, ethnically, economically diverse. Paul's teaching time in the city was cut short as he was driven out of the city by a militant Jewish contingent. So many people responded to the gospel that the Jews, some of the Jews, became jealous of Paul and tried to run him out of town. So here's the rest of that story from Acts 17. Some of the Jews responded and put their faith in Jesus, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. <laughs> then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So, of course, these Jews here, they were upset, but they had no real power, right? We're not in Jerusalem. We're in Thessalonica. So they had to uh, find an angle by which to get the attention of the secular city officials. And how they did that was to, pro to, uh, to suggest that Paul was forming an insurrection against Caesar. Uh, imperial, uh, 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 the, what's called the imperial cult was kind of prominent at this time. You would generally have to swear allegiance to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is master. This would be a sort of common test of your allegiance to the Roman Empire. 
And of course, Paul was proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. And so they picked up on that and said, hey, do you know that, that this, this Paul is, is declaring that there's another king? There's another authority out there? Uh, are you going to put up with that? And um, he's stirring things up, stirring up trouble for the Apostle Paul. Fearing for Paul's safety, the believers in Thessalonica arranged to have Paul leave Thessalonica under cover of darkness. And I think this is a big part of the story here. Uh, Paul was only in the city for about a month or so. And his teaching, the instruction, these are new believers. The church just formed, right? And, and he is now pulled away from them. And so they, they didn't receive a lot of, of training. And I think in some ways we can be thankful because Paul then had to resort to writing them a letter, which we have a copy of today. <laughs> Uh, with Paul's instructions, his training manual for this young church. But that certainly is part of the backstory uh, here for this church. Uh, out of concern for these new believers who are experiencing intense per pressure and militant opposition, Paul sent his co-worker Timothy to check on them. So we read about this here in the third chapter of the letter. Um, presumably... I mean, Paul knew, he, he had just experienced all this persecution and opposition, and he escaped out of the city, but these new believers were still in the thick of it, right? They were still uh, fighting against these, these enemies, and so Paul just became increasingly concerned about how they were doing. Uh, notice how he describes his concern. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the end of verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So there in just uh, one paragraph, Paul identifies, them as, uh, uh, identifies him as their mother and as their father, <laughs> nurturing them, encouraging them, disciplining them, I mean, he, he was thinking about them as, as young children who needed a parent to, to help them along the way. So, so again, this, this informs uh, the nature of their relationship. Timothy brought back a good report regarding their persistent faith in God and love for one another. So they were doing great. Uh, they exceeded Paul's expectations. And Paul wrote this letter to commend them. Uh, to say good job, <laughs> uh, but also to more fully establish them in the faith and to continue the teaching that he had started. So I think it's really the, the two main sections of the letter. Chapters 1 through 3 are all encouragement, commendation, good job. Uh, so thankful for, for you. I'm thankful for how God has preserved you. I'm thankful for the, the genuineness of your faith. And then the second section, for chapters 4 and 5, are sort of... Um, 
Paul picking up again on his teaching and continuing to instruct them and urge them to continue to grow in their, in their faith and their walk with Christ. So uh, we'll kind of look at both of those aspects here this morning. Paul would visit Thessalonica twice more on his third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 19 and 20. It does seem that, uh, I mean, Paul experienced persecution in Thessalonica, and these believers experienced a lot of persecution, and it seems that that forged their their, their relationship. Uh, matter of fact, there were several key trusted co-workers uh, of Paul's who had their origin, who were from Thessalonica. Demas, Secundus, Gaius, and Aristarchus. Uh, an unusual number of, of Paul's uh, co-workers from this, this particular city. So again, the first section is about commendation. Um, Paul gives thanks for their genuine conversion. The beginning just starts off with a, a great statement of gratitude. Um, and Paul actually points out why their conversion was, was genuine. Uh, he cites uh, in, in uh, verses 2 through 5 that they had evidenced a, a, a different trajectory in terms of their lifestyle uh, he says that they were marked by faith and hope and love. And Paul says there that the gospel came not just with words, but with power and the Holy Spirit and conviction of sin. Like these people were heading one direction, and then they encountered the gospel, and now they're heading another direction. <laughs> I mean, there was, a, there was a tremendous change, an evident change. Uh, they, these people had been willing to endure persecution. The end of verse 5 through verse 8, Paul cites that as one of the marks of their faith. They, they received the gospel. They, there was no, no delusions about what they were stepping into, right? Because controversy broke out immediately. Paul is driven out of town. I mean, they made strong and definitive decisions to place their faith in Jesus Christ, even though it came at great cost. And they renounced other allegiances. Uh, again, they turned to God from idols. Uh, it would have been common in the ancient world for people to worship all sorts of different, uh, different gods and goddesses, right? The pantheon of, the, of, of, uh, of, of Rome and Greece, right? The, so to, to, to limit themselves, to recognize the one true God and to turn away from all of the other idols, this too is a mark of, of their genuine conversion. So, so Paul just... Uh, commends them for their strong faith. Paul reflects on his own ministry in Thessalonica, there in chapter 2. It seems that some had maybe accused Paul of kind of slipping out of town when the going got rough. Paul reminded them of what he had endured and suffered for the gospel. Paul says, listen, before I got to Thessalonica, I was in Philippi, and I was put in jail in Philippi. And I could have just bailed then, but no, I pressed on to come to Thessalonica, knowing probably what I was going to encounter. But I loved you enough, I was determined enough to bring the gospel to you that I came anyways. Don't talk to me about motives. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul sort of defends a bit of his, his commitment and his love for them. Uh, here's the section, uh, again, where he talked about being 
their mother and their father, and, and he, I was so concerned. When I couldn't stand it any longer, I sent Timothy to you. Uh, seemingly, Paul couldn't go himself. He was not welcome in Thessalonica, but he sent his most trusted person, Timothy, leaving himself all alone because he cared so much for this church. So he expresses and just affirms his commitment to them. And then he prays uh, for their continued progress in the gospel. Matter of fact, both sections end with a prayer. There's first section of commendation, and then he goes into exhortation, and he again closes with a prayer at the end. And both of the prayers uh, are pretty similar. He just asks God to complete what he has started in these believers. And he He prays that they will be able to stand blameless on the day that Jesus returns. We've been singing about already this morning about the return of Christ. It's a major theme in the letter. Paul wanted them to live in light of Jesus' soon return. Um, so, So this is that opening section of commendation. And then... He moves into a section on exhortation. And this is where I want to just spend a little bit more time here in chapters 4 and 5. This is the training manual uh, section that I suggested to you at the outset. Now when I talk about a training manual for new believers, uh, some of you maybe decided to tune me out because you don't consider yourself a new believer. So I thought maybe we just uh, set the stage as to who's in the room today, right? Uh, We have some new believers in the room today. Uh, You... uh, Uh, have been saved for a relatively short period of time, and you will certainly profit in hearing Paul's instructions for new believers. Uh, Perhaps you are not a new believer, but you're an immature believer. I don't mean to insult you today, but maybe you came to an, an understanding of your sin, and you responded with a childlike faith in Christ, but you've never really received solid, succinct, pointed training, instruction, discipleship, and how to live as a follower of Christ. And so you too uh, would profit from Paul's instructions here. Uh, Perhaps you have been a believer for some time. Here's another group of people, right? You've been a believer for some time, but You have forgotten or lost sight of or perhaps even turned away from these guidelines. And you need to be reminded again about the responsibilities that are involved in being a follower of Christ. And maybe a fourth category, you are living in line with these commands and need to be affirmed and encouraged to keep on. I think in part that's what's happening here. These are both new believers, but these are also obedient believers. Uh, Notice how Paul starts the section, the application section in chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So again, Paul's saying, you're already doing these things, at least in part. I just want to encourage you to keep growing. Um, So Paul has this this idea that there's always room for more growth. We ought to always be progressing in these things. Sanctification is not a one-and-done thing. So I think for all of us, we ought to be able to profit from the training manual that Paul lays out here. So seven things I'm going to highlight. Broad categories, 
Uh, Number one, live a sexually holy life. This is where Paul begins. Chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God's will is that you should be sanctified. It's interesting language, isn't it? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. We are often interested in knowing God's will. We generally mean God's personal will for my life, right? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? Paul actually mentions God's will twice in this passage, and both times he is referring to God's collective will for his people, referring to God's will not for me, but for us. And God's will is not hidden, all right? He has boldly declared his will for us. He wants us to be distinct and set apart. That's what the word holy means. And he's talking specifically here about our sexuality. We ought to be different, distinct in how we view our sexuality, how we express our sexuality. Culture is simply driven by their passions to do whatever they want to do, sexually speaking. Anything goes. But Paul says we are not mere animals driven by base instincts. We are called to control our bodies and live according to God's design for sexuality. And God has designed sex to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And so anything outside of that is sin. This includes engaging sexually with those of the same sex, sex with someone who's not your spouse, recreational sex, outside the covenant of marriage. Paul calls us to be holy, to be distinct from the culture in this particular domain. It's a big one in the first century. It was a big one in the first century, and it's a big one in our culture. A sexualized culture with a variety of different philosophies that are being promoted. I love how scripture not only gives us instruction and commands, but also reasons. Uh, He could just stop with the command, but he gives reasons. And he gives several reasons here in this text. Number one, it's a sin against others. Chapter 4, verse 6, the first part of that verse. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. We might think that sex between consenting adults is a private matter that doesn't impact anybody else, but that's a lie. Um, Sexual sin is a a sin against your spouse. It's a sin against your future spouse if you're not married, against the other person's spouse or their future spouse. Uh, Sexual sin is not a private sin. It involves wronging other people. Paul goes on to say that We ought to pursue holiness in this whole arena of our sexuality because uh, it's a sin against God. 
chapter 4, verse 6, the end of that verse, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. So at its very root, even apart from how it impacts other people, which it does, it is a sin against God, and God will judge sexual sin. It's also, I don't know, the best way to say it, I'm going to say it like this, it's also a sin against ourselves. Notice verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It speaks here of of God uh, having a certain calling, a certain design for sexuality. And when we engage in sexual sin, we we step away from our calling. Um, Sexual purity is not only right, it is best for us. And when we rebel against God's good designs, against his calling, we do so to our own detriment and destruction. So we are to live holy or distinct lives in this domain. Number two, live a life of mutual love. Live a life of mutual love, chapter 4, verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. That's really interesting how Paul says this. You've been taught by God to love one another. I'm not exactly sure what Paul means by that. I do know that the type of love that the Bible calls us to is not natural. To actually put someone else's needs ahead of my own doesn't just flow out of me. In my, in my natural state, right? That, that requires God to do something in my heart to move me to that point. And Paul could have in mind what he just referenced back in verse 8, just one verse prior, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So in some sense, these people had been uh, transformed by God in order to love. But then he describes the nature of their love. They love they love. All of God's family. I think this is another key part of thinking properly about love. Um, We need to view each other as family, as brothers and sisters. There's a steadiness in that kind of a relationship. Now, you might not get along with brothers and sisters, but they're still your brothers and sisters. You have to work through it, right? And there's just a steadiness in that relationship. And, And so they were loving like family. I hope you view each other that way, not just as people I go to church with or friends even, but family. I know it sounds a little old-fashioned to say, hey, brother so-and-so, hey, sister so-and-so. You know, we don't necessarily talk like that today, but well, that ought to inform how we view each other as family. And, and Paul goes on to say they love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. There's a breadth to their love, too. They're not just loving their little group who likes the same things that they like in the local church. They're not just even loving their own local church, their own peeps, but they're they're loving even people and believers in other churches, right, in other locations. Uh, There's a a breadth to, their love is indiscriminate. They love all of God's people, all of God's children. So they're doing this well, but he wants them to, to continue to grow in this area. So does your life show evidence of love? Uh, I don't, I've been trying to think how to ask the question. Are there certain things that you do, not because you want to do them, but because you know that they're best for others? 
So I often have the conversation about being involved in, in, a, in a hub group or some other context where you can know and be known. And sometimes people say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well, Pastor. And, uh, and I have to sometimes push back and say, well, well that's great, but it's not about you. <laughs> you know, other people need your voice. They, they need your encouragement. They need to hear you speaking truth into their lives. Uh, sometimes we need to put ourselves in places we don't want to put ourselves because it's best for others. So this is that kind of self-sacrificing love that he wants them to embody. Number three, live a respectable life. Chapter 4, verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody so a series of instructions here live a quiet life don't be a troublemaker don't pick fights don't be a drama queen uh mind your own affairs i i I don't really like how this translates it it's a good translation mind your own business but what we generally mean by that is stay out of other people's business but paul's just saying mind your business (laughs) you know uh pay what you owe shovel your sidewalk mow your grass Watch your weight. You know, I mean, mind your business. Live, live an ordered life. Work with your hands, he says. Be a hard worker. Don't just be a consumer. Be a contributor. And here's the payoff in this section, verse 12. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. My friends, the world is watching. They're watching now more than ever. We live in such a skeptical age. Talk is cheap. People are tired of talk. (laughs) They're looking to see if our lives reflect what we claim. Paul moves here beyond mere morality, right? Sexual ethics to aesthetics. We should exude grace and civility. People will be offended by the gospel. People were offended right, by Paul's proclamation of the gospel. But unfortunately, many people are offended by our uncharitable social media posts and our poor work ethic and our toxic and disrespectful attitudes towards authority. We should not remain silent in a godless culture, but we should throttle and filter our speech so as not to give personal offense. I ask you, what are you known for? If I were to ask your neighbors what you are known for, what would they say? What is your reputation? Does your life make the gospel attractive? Are you living a beautiful life? Not a perfect life, don't get me wrong. We all bring our baggage. But is your life characterized by grace and beauty? Number four, live a life of hope. These early believers knew that Jesus was returning. They expected him to return in their lifetime. And so when some of these first century believers started dying, the church was a bit unsettled. (laughs) Paul wanted to uh, give them a clear sense of hope. So he explained to them what happens when a Christian dies. When a Christian dies, they essentially fall asleep, right? It's a temporary state. Paul communicates this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. One of the texts we often read at a graveside service when we're thinking about these sorts of things. 
Paul's goal here is not to give comprehensive knowledge about the future, to lay out a specific timeline, but to give hope and encouragement in the present. So he says, we grieve, Christians grieve when they face death, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Are you a person of hope? It doesn't mean you wear a plastic smile and pretend like everything's good. But are you a person who has an underlying sense of hope? This was so critical for these believers who were enduring persecution, right? And I think it'll become increasingly critical for us as we face increasing persecution. No one's threatening our lives, but there's a lot of prices to pay for following Christ. It clearly involves swimming upstream. And we can get angry about the culture and where things are going. But I think when we see what's happening around us, when we face opposition, we ought to be driven to consider our hope. We ought not to be cranky, sullen, woe is me, the sky is falling kind of people. We ought to be people with a very clear and steady sense of hope. This is Christian basics here. Okay. Live a vigilant life. Paul continues into chapter 5 to think about the return of Christ. We don't know what the timing is. It will come like a thief in the night. But Paul says, we are not of the night. We are children of the day. Uh, We should not be surprised at Christ's return. Matter of fact, we should be waiting for it. We should be living in expectation of that return. We shouldn't be distracted by all of the allure of this world. We shouldn't be snoozing. Uh, We ought to be waiting and ready for him to return. How does the the soon return of Jesus uh, impact and shape the way you live your life? How does it show up in the allocation of your finances and of your discretionary time and your energies? Are you living in light of Christ's return? We have to live a life of mutual submission uh, in the church. I think in this section he's talking specifically about relationships within the church. Uh, Not just our personal lives, but our corporate lives together. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So he says, um, acknowledge those in the local church who are over you, who labor on your behalf, and who help care for you. He's talking about church leadership here, elders particularly. The implication is you're not always going to like what they have to say. Especially when they admonish you. That's a hard word. That's not a pleasant word. Right? But the, the, the elder, the pastor's willingness to admonish you is part of how they care for you. They, they warn you about destructive behaviors that you might not be able to see. So he's saying function under that, under that authority. And, and he goes on to say it's not just about the pastor challenging the people. He goes, he goes on to say we, 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 we challenge each other. Uh, sometimes it's a word of encouragement. Sometimes it's a word of warning. Uh, we, we need to be engaged in those kinds of long-term relationships. We must 
uh, be willing to show patience with people. We must have a long-term perspective to really help people grow in Christ. So he's calling them to this sort of robust sense of community life. I ask you, have you placed yourself under the authority of leaders in the local church? Some of you remain on the fringe. I always beat my drum for membership because it signals a submission to, a mutual submission to other believers. Um, Yeah, have you placed yourself under the authority of leaders in the local church? Have you put yourself in a position where other believers can speak truth into your life? Have you put yourself in a position where you can speak truth into the lives of other believers and encourage them in their walk? So we need to live a life of mutual submission in the church. Finally, live a joyful life. This one, I I, I, I would love to just gloss right over this one. This is my area right here. I'll just lay it out there. I'm a glass half empty guy. I'm I'm a bit of a complainer. I'm a worrier. Uh, I'm struck with how Paul just commands us to be joyful. It's a choice. You can control what you think about. You can control what you let into your mind. I realize there is clinical depression and that uh, some people are not able to fully control that. But for the vast majority of us, we can control what we think about and we are responsible to control it. And we ought not to be complainers. We ought to be people who are marked by joy. Paul expounds that here in this section. Well, at the start of training camp in 1961, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, walked into the locker room and said, Gentlemen, this is a football Right? This was a good team he was coaching. They had, they had made it like to the championship game the year before, and they would go on to win the title in 1961. This was not like a bunch of uh, first-timers, but Lombardi recognized the need to kind of keep coming back to basics. And I would suggest to you that we need to do the same. <laughs> Too often we lose sight of what those core basic training responsibilities are for the follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you may be hearing them for the first time. Some of you having to come back to them again like I was this week, right? But we are called to, follow, to, to walk in a certain way as we live out our faith in this world. And I commend this training manual to 